You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 137 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month and as usual we are going to listen to a pre-recorded talk and this time by Terence McKenna. It is really a collection of talks that were part of a workshop in the early 90s that Terence called History Ends in Green. This is actually many hours long and some of what Terence is saying has already appeared in other recordings already. So what I did was I edited this talk heavily and yes, my little daughter is here helping me as you can hear in the background. Anyway, I was editing this talk heavily and what we now have is about an hour left of the very best and the most interesting and novel And of course, these assumptions is made of my own tastes, but it is my podcast after all. If you want to get the full experience, just Google History Ends in Green Terence McKenna. It can be found all over the internet if you want the full version. Uh, But the version I'm about to play can only be found here on the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. As for what Terence is about to talk about, I don't think it needs any introduction from me. Let's instead just allow Terence to do his thing. In hearing what people's interests were, and trying to think about it in new ways, you know, the uniting thing in the 20th century, I think one of the things that sets the 20th century completely apart, really, from previous times if not ontologically, then by degree, is the, uh, the focus on the moving image and the role that this has had in shaping 20th century culture. And it comes really in three forms. It comes in, in the natural and available form of the dream, which always, to some degree, has shaped human culture. Uh, but for Freud and Jung in the early 20th century and their followers, the dream took on a whole new significance that it had never uh, had before. It was seen as a cryptic messenger from a, from a hidden world. And as these things seem to work out, concomitantly, Uh, a technology of the moving image was developing, which was film. And film and the dream then become almost the two defining poles of the evolution of the aesthetic of the 20th century over the first uh, half of it, we'll say. And then Um, In 1953, because that's when Gordon and Valentina Wasson discovered the mushroom, or earlier, if you want to date it to Hoffman's discoveries in Switzerland, or the German work in the 20s, or later, if you want to date it to the discovery in 56 of DMT by, by Zara. But at any point, at any rate, at some point, the third triad is introduced, which is the hallucinogenic or psychedelic experience. And all, um, all three of these areas of concern uh, 
have adumbrations in the primitive, the stress on dreaming, uh, even the magic lantern and uh, prestidigitation feats of Renaissance magic have a relationship to early film. And of course, the psychedelic experience is absolutely archaic. Nevertheless, the coming together of these three concerns in this particular fashion in the 20th century set the stage, I think, for an important part of what I will call during this weekend uh, the archaic revival. And the archaic revival is nothing less than a strategy for cultural survival on a global scale. And it's a strategy that is taking place in the animal body of, of mankind. It's not an intellectual strategy or a rational strategy. This is what happens whenever a society is slammed to the wall. It unconsciously reaches back through its history or its mythology for a steadying metaphor. Now, the last time this happened in the West and worked was at the time of the collapse of the medieval Christian eschatology, at the time of the rise of urbanization and banking and secular society. Uh, the model of the Christian universe was no longer serviceable. And very suddenly, philosophers, politicians, social planners reached into the past for classic models. And this was in the 15th and 16th century. And they created classicism, the revivification of Roman law, Greek architecture, Greek polity, all of this happened a thousand to fifteen hundred years after these things had been completely abandoned. But then they became the basis for modern secular civilization and our laws are, are Greco-Roman and our architecture and our aesthetic and so forth and so on. Well, the way this is happening in the twentieth century is number one at a much more deep and profound level because it's a global reflex. The entirety of modern civilization has shot its wad in some sense. You know, from the, from the perspective of 500 years, a society that cannot put bread on its grocery shelves, such as the Soviet Union, and a society such as our own that is three trillion dollars in debt, the difference is negligible. I mean, both of these societies are functionally bankrupt. So we're living through and have been living through throughout the 20th century uh, an experience of the dissolution of boundary and form. Everything has been in a state of flux throughout the 20th century. I mean, it opens with the concept of the Edwardian gentleman and lady firmly in place, class structure, class privilege, race privilege, sex privilege, the entire structure of uh, the assumptions of the post-medieval world are in place and functioning. Now, 90 years later, none of this is in place. 
And to my mind, the, uh, the major um, factor working to achieve this end has not been the two world wars or the exploration of the unconscious by Dada and surrealism or the breakdown of uh, classical design mores or any of this stuff. It's been the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience is a genuine um, paradigm-shattering phenomenon. We claim that we want this. This is what lies behind the love of flying saucers and uh, you know the Loch Ness monster and all of this. Is we want a paradigm-shattering object, piece of evidence, body of testimony something like that. But what we don't realize is we have it. We have it, as somebody over here on this side of the room said, you know, it's a matter of courage. And this places it in a special, uh, in a special mode. It's not something where we can just validate it and then, uh, you know, found an institute and appoint experts and expect them to issue a report. It's something actually at the center of our being. And uh, my motivation for talking to audiences like this is simply that I, it, I cannot conceive of mature human beings going from the cradle to the grave without ever finding out about this. I mean, it's not like not finding out about sex or something, you know? It's just too weird. It's a part of our birthright. It's not a cultural artifact. It's not like being able to ride a bicycle or something like that, where you can imagine that pygmies or Amazonian Indians go from birth to the grave and they never ride a bicycle and they never miss it. But this is a little more existentially front and center than that. I mean, this is, as far as I can tell, the um, dimension in which we most fully experience ourselves as ourselves. Well, you know, culture, we have to be very careful about the, um, the corrosive effects of culture. Some of you may know about these, that um, was reported in Time magazine a month or two ago, about these forms of salamanders that never, if the conditions of alkalinity in the lakes are at a certain level, they never mature into the adult form. They actually can reproduce in a juvenile form so there can be generations of these salamanders that don't even suspect the existence of an, of an adult form that lies beyond the sexually mature functional adult form. And this is how I sort of think of what the effect of human culture has been on us. Because I now I'm convinced that the... the um, impulse that I feel in myself and that I see in other people toward the psychedelic experience is, has to do with its potential historical impact. Even though, God knows, we're all aware 
this is how religion has always been practiced you know yet somehow this million year old sociological phenomenon orgiastic group minded um, shamanism in a context of nomadic pastoralism this phenomenon was only interrupted 10 or 15,000 years ago and is apparently the uh, the state of dynamic equilibrium where we function at our best where we feel at our most human but once men wanted to trace the descent line of the male genes previously uh, self-expressive orgiastic group-minded sexuality became compartmentalized into concerns of territoriality ownership so forth and so on but then that wasn't the end of it there then uh, uh, the rise of hierarchical kingship the amazing you see the problem with uh, um, human beings is that we ride very close to a kind of um, bifurcation point in terms of whether our loyalty is transferred to the group or to the individual and this can be sent either way I mean if there were to be landslides at both ends of highway one and a food shortage you know we would coalesce marvelously into a survival machine where we would all place group values higher than our own needs and nobly so this would happen but in situations of abundance and non-scarcity then the, it's like a slime mold without the formality of coherency we just then dissolve into this sort of every man for himself egocentric uh, style and then you know another bad break along the way that may or may not have been fated may have just been a bad break is the evolution of the phonetic alphabet which creates a tremendous distance between cognition and the objects of linguistic intentionality and this gives permission then for all kinds of forms of brutalization it actually gives permission for ideology ideology to my mind is the denial of the obvious and the substitution for something else where you say you know no that's not how people are we have a Marxist model or we have a Freudian model or we have you know John Stuart Mill's model who knows but somebody's model uh, so ideology someone said language was uh, invented in order that people could lie and in large measure this is true that we proceed by deception uh, I believe that the the presence of these psychedelics in the plant metabolism in the biosphere allowed a kind of informational symbiosis and that we have no word for this that we're comfortable with the closest word we have for it is somehow tied up with the concept of religion religio but for us religion is some kind of abstract dialogue carried on with a philosophical principle that's not what it is religion originally was the dimension of the self that directly interfaced nature 
or the over-self. And this happened through the use of psychedelics. So the reason the weekend is called History Ends in Green and what this whole Gaian uh, awareness thing is, to my mind, is it's not an airy-fairy attempt to recast uh, a new image for religious ontology. It's the actual discovery of the minded presence of the planet, which has always been here, which is real. It's an existential fact, like chlorophyll or, uh, you know, the moons of Saturn. The planet has a biological mind of some sort. Once you, enter, once you articulate this notion, it doesn't seem that unlikely. After all, the planet is clearly a boundary-defining topology. It's had two billion years to, uh, you know, uh, make itself metastable, undergo all kinds of autopoiesis. We see the evidence of this around us in the form of the uh, climaxed biome of the planet. We see that biology and uh, water chemistry has been very active. But what we don't see is that as active as the chemistry of water or, uh, or uh, electron transfer have also been the invisible alchemies of, you know, call it spirit, call it mind, call it the morphogenetic field, whatever it is. And that that is the frontier of our awareness. Every society in history has had the erroneous belief that it just required six more months and five percent more data and then they would have a full picture of reality. But you know, the fact of the matter is our society at its present state of sophistication, we have the only science we have that can be given any serious creditability at all is physics, the, the, prim, the most primitive of all sciences, the science of momentum and moving bodies in three-dimensional space. When you move on to biology, you know, essentially what we have are a, a series of interlocking fables and a few bright spots of light in certain areas. When you move on to psychology, what you have are shouting charlatans, you know, each claiming domain over their own special area. I mean, it's like a medieval fair. So uh, uh, the, the, the belief that our uh, intellectual maps are somehow adequate is just whistling past the graveyard. And the way we have achieved this illusion of good maps is by tossing out all the disturbing and unintegratable phenomena. Uh, for instance, dreams were trivialized and ignored for centuries. Uh, madness was something that you can find a way, like criminality, was not to be looked at. Sexuality, I don't have to remind you that as recently as 120 years ago, people were putting bloomers on piano legs to preserve youth from impure thoughts. I mean, you talk about a rejectionist style toward reality. I mean, we have just begun to open our eyes 
to what is around us. Well, so then front and center, when we begin to explore, let's take a conservative uh, position toward exploring the universe. Let's explore from the center outward. Well, that means uh, from within the confines of the mind-body system. Before we generalize about tectonic plates or the motion of the rings of Uranus or something like that, just start from the body out. Well, immediately you discover total terra incognito. Psychology uh, gives us a, you know, a flickering model of ordinary consciousness under ordinary circumstances and everything else is up for grabs. And then we discover that, you know, at the center of human concerns is this uh, weird itch about invisible worlds and higher order entities and sources of hidden knowledge. And we've discovered, well, people have been at that for a hundred thousand years. And the centerpiece technique, which is to trigger these non-ordinary states of consciousness, with all our sophistication, we have a no better grip on what this is than people in the late Neolithic. They knew more than we did because they'd logged more time on in the real modality. I mean, we have models. We say, you know, the drug molecule is translocating to the synapse and displacing ordinary neurotransmitters and raising, therefore, the endogenous level of electron spin resonance. This is not any kind of explanation about what's going on. This is just the chant, the incantation, <laughs> you know. But the, the people who are logging time in there, they come back with maps of reality that fit very uneasily with our cheerful Cartesian Democritean atomistic uh, causal entropic models. And they say, no, no, the universe is an infinite honeycomb, each honeycomb ruled over by different spiritual forces, each commanded through different languages, magical techniques, gestural repertoire. Everything is language. Everything holds information for man. Everything is somehow constellated on the presence of observing mind. The universe seems to be an engine for the conservation of complexity until we reach the social sciences where they want to tell us that history is just dropped into this process willy-nilly, is not fractally modeled on anything that precedes it, does not express an internal coherence, and is a completely trendless process. Yet notice that this completely trendless process is atomically composed of the most complex matter material organization in the universe, the human cerebral cortex. Well, I mention this because part of what I'm interested in with this weekend is trying to get a handle on, you know, what is history? What does it mean? It began only 1,500 generations ago, which if we were fruit flies would be three weeks ago. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's not something really basic to human beings, but it's a process that got started about 1,500 generations ago, and it's a clearly accumulative runaway process. It's going on outside the realm of ordinary genetics. 
ordinary genetic change is very conservative and slow. This is a cancerous type process, but in the cultural domain, it's an epigenetic process, meaning it's not scripted in the genes, but like writing and TV and painting, it goes on outside of the genes. Well, where does it go on? Well, it goes on in the domain of language. And to my mind, language is the critical area to focus on in terms of where the psychedelics are operating and how, if, if our interest is to trap them doing their elfin work, then the place to look is in the domain of language. Why? Well, first of all, look at what language is. It's a weird kind of ancillary add-on process to the human organism. No other monkeys do it in quite the same way. And I, I don't argue that there is not linguistic and grammatical activity in monkeys, dolphins, termites, what have you. But it's very different from what goes on in human beings. Obviously, uh, for instance, you probably know that the, uh, the soft palate of the human being drops lower in the fetal form than in any other primate by, by uh, 40% or something. What this, the embryological interpretation of this is that the human animal is hardwired for language. And if, uh, if you notice what it is, it's small mouth noises, rapidly modulated small mouth noises. And it, it's a conventionalized, it's a highly conventionalized style of behavior which allows transduction of thought. It's a form of telepathy, a striving toward a crude telepathy. Because if you analyze what's happening in the linguistic act, it's that we've all gotten together and we agree that there are these small mouth noises and we agree that a given set of small mouth noises means a certain thing. And we are, we've spent so much time together and so conventionalized our responses to each other that your dictionary of small mouth noises is theoretically supposed to match my dictionary of small mouth noises. So the words going through the air impinge upon your ear. You make a rapid search of your dictionary and you come up with what you assume is a one-to-one -one match. And we rarely get together to check out just exactly how good a match it was. Occasionally someone will ask a question and we will see that they understood that the match, and so the match was good. Because I see a lot of transcripts of my talks, I know that typists hear the most amazing things. And without ever questioning what they hear, they type. These, these things that when I read them, you know, they're complete malapropisms. Uh, but but this, is, this is what was heard. And as the level of discourse rises or the density of the technical language increases, uh, it becomes much, much shakier. I mean, I just had the experience of, of lecturing in Czechoslovakia in Prague to the Film Academy. And, you know, you can go a long ways on sincerity. 
but uh, there's a long way still to go. Uh, just nodding and, and smiling doesn't, doesn't do it, when, especially when the concepts are fine-tuned, and it's where they're fine-tuned that they're always interesting. It's in the nuances of it. Well, uh, I think probably that this activity was originally stimulated by the use of psychedelics that, uh, in fact, most of what is human about us has to do with our, uh, the presence of psychedelic and mutagenic compounds in our diet when we made the transition from being fruititarian, vegetarian, <coughs> arboreal tree dwellers to becoming, um, you know, nomadic uh, pastoralists. This, this lifestyle, if you will, of nomadic, nomadic pastoralism, goddess-oriented religion driven by psychedelic indoles in the diet, that for 50,000, approaching 75,000 years, this is how people lived. And they were fully realized people. I mean, there was tremendous oral poetry, epic works of art and theater, a complete realization of human potential in the dynamic context of this nomadic relationship to nature. I mean, this was Eden. This was when we were at peace with our humanness. Well, then, you know, what happened? Is there a search for scapegoats? Who's to blame? And the answer is nobody is to blame. The very process which brought this paradise into being, which was the drying up of the African continent and the forcing of, of our proto-human ancestors onto the veldt and into the bipedal, uh, nomadic, tribal, language-using mode, the very forces which created that destroyed it because eventually the great... Uh, grasslands of the Sahara, the huge water holes, the vast herds of game gave way to encroaching dunes, shrinking water holes. The mushroom festivals, which I imagine at one point were probably lunar festivals, became then yearly festivals because of scarcity of the mushroom. And uh, there became then anxiety about availability of mushrooms and therefore a certain uh, cultural pressure to find methods of preserving them. And this uh, need turned naturally to the preserving powers of honey. And so there was a transitional phase of not fresh mushroom festivals but preserved mushrooms in honey. The problem is Honey itself has the capacity to turn into a psychotropic substance. Through fermentation, it becomes mead. But the imprinting that takes place in a mead culture, mead cultures are cultures of male dominance, repression of female sexuality, hierarchy, warfare, wheeled chariots, the whole shtick. And so... You know, there was, and this all happened over thousands of years, this very gradual transition. There was never a conscious moment of tragedy. But you see, what was happening was a new 
psychic function was taking hold in the human animal. Uh, in the situation of the monthly boundary-dissolving group mushroom festivals, ego was not allowed to form. And I really view psilocybin as almost an inoculation against the formation of ego. It is, a, it is an egolytic compound. So uh, notions of male dominance, of possession of property, children, domesticated animals, or women, none of this went on in this situation where the boundary dissolution was reinforced by frequent mushroom use. But as soon as the mushrooms become less available, this thing begins to grow in the human personality, literally like a cancer or a tumor. It's a calcareous growth on the psyche that if we do not have this embeddedness in the vegetable matrix of Gaia, then anxiety arises, a lot of it uh, sexual and related to self-identity, and I don't have to discuss this with you, you just refer you to Freud and the whole gang, everybody understands how bent we are. The question is why, and I think this is why, because we have been in a permanent state of neurotic disequilibrium for 15,000 years. And every move to attempt to correct this has pushed us further away from the goal that we want to have. So now we arrive at the 20th, late 20th century, nuclear arsenals fully in hand. We have made since the 15th century a demonic pact with matter that has allowed us great insight into the destructive properties of matter, made us, you know, handmaiden to the devil, and yet we are still completely dark about our own motivations, how to educate our children, how to put in place a set of values that don't loot the future, and all of these problems appear to be getting worse. So, um, you know, I don't know, well, my response to this is to advocate the only thing that I think will work. You know, people, like sometimes there are people who are disappointed because they say, well, how often do you do it? Well, the answer is not very often. I mean, if I can get it in a couple or three times a year, I feel like I'm hitting it pretty hard. And the more successful it is, the less often you have to do it. I mean, I know people who say DMT is their most favorite drug. And when you say, well, when was the last time you did it? They say, well, 1967. There's, it only lasted four minutes. They're still processing it. And, and they are still processing it. They're not just whistling Dixie. I mean, I, it is, to my mind, the, just the most... Well, I mentioned this earlier, the question, how do they keep the lid on this stuff? And I suppose here I'm preaching to the converted, because every, many people last night said they had an interest in this kind of thing. But um, they don't keep the lid on sexuality. No society has ever had it so under control that people didn't have sex. 
I mean, they may have had sex under weird conditions and uh, uh, under, you know, ritual strictures and this and that. But we are like this salamander that has the option of never developing into its mature form. And to my mind, that's a tragedy because this is our birthright and somehow our inability to get a grip on our global problems has to do with this immaturity about our mental state. The two, I, I feel very strongly, are linked. And that, of course, we can't get control of the world because we are children in some profound way. And we don't like being children. It's, it, but the culture has reinforced a form of infantilism. And the, the way I explain it to myself is it's a kind of unwillingness to go it alone on a certain level. I don't know how many of you remember in Brave New World, Huxley's brilliant dystopia, but there's a scene in there where um, Bernard, who is the guy who's out of it in the novel because in his fetal fluid they got an alcohol contaminant, and so he's different from everybody else in this society. And he occasionally has original thoughts. And he and his uh, assigned girlfriend for the evening or whatever she is are in a helicopter. And they sweep out past the crematoria that, where they're recollecting elements for reuse. And he suspends the helicopter over the Black Bay uh, and... Uh, and she immediately becomes very agitated, restless, anxious, and pleads with him to return to the city. And what it is, is it's her anxiety over being alone in the presence of nature. She literally can't take it. And I think there are a lot of people in our society, uh, and each of us in our own way at different times, who uh, have within us this neurotic and infantile creature that can't face it alone and that this um, going it alone thing is very important. You know, Plotinus, the great Neoplatonic philosopher, he spoke of the mystical experience as the flight of the alone to the alone. And... Um, in the psychedelic experience, there is this issue of surrender because a lot of people want to diddle with it. They want to be able to say they did it, but they don't ever want to face an actual moment where they put it all on the line. And yet the whole issue with this stuff is to let it lead, to let it show what it wants to show. So somehow, individually, we have to reclaim our experience. Uh, the, the real message, more important even than the psychedelic experience, the real message that I try to leave with people in these weekends is the primacy of direct experience. That as people, the real universe is... Uh, you know, within your reach, always. Everything not within your reach is basically unconfirmed rumor. And we 
insert ourselves like ants or honeybees into hierarchies of knowledge. So we say, well, what's going on in the world? Well, turn on CNN. You know, and then somehow we're ordered, then we say, aha, uh -huh, okay, it's 85 degrees in Baghdad and the wind is out of the northeast at 15 miles an hour. And we feel somehow better now because we're getting the information. But what we have done is sold out direct experience. And all institutions require this of us, that we somehow redefine ourselves for the convenience of the institution. And this redefinition always involves a narrowing, a denial, so that, you know, if you want to be in Marxist society, if you want to function in Marxist society, you have to define yourself as a Marxist human being. Well, it turns out in a Marxist society there are no homosexuals because that just happens in decadent societies. So then, you know, if you happen to notice any tendency like this in yourself, you have to deny its existence because it just does, this just doesn't happen in a Marxist society. And similarly, every society has this. In our society, if you hear voices, we have mental hospitals for you. Uh, if you if you have vast visions of the future, uh, you know we have drugs that can help you and uh, make this go away. Uh, so we so then somehow in modern society, the discovery of psychedelics is the discovery that all of this cultural machinery is just Wizard of Oz stuff. You know, I don't see history as a wrong turning. I see it, the metaphor that I like is that of the prodigal son, that there was a reason for this long descent into matter, this peregrination. It was a shamanic journey of some sort. You know, the shaman goes into the, the world pool or ascends the world tree to go to the center of the axis of the cosmos to recover the pearl, the pearl or the gift or the lost soul, and then return with it. And this is what history was, I think. It was a descent into the hell worlds of matter, energy, space, and time for the purpose of recovering something that was lost, you know, you can almost make a kind of a fractal, quasi-reductionist argument and say that people are like electrons, and you don't learn what electrons really are until you get just one of them off by itself somewhere in a magnetic field, in a vacuum. And then you see what electrons are. If you have millions of electrons, then you have an electrical current and an electrical current operates according to laws and rules and constraints completely different from an electron. And what we have done very perversely as a society is taken the laws of large numbers, how a million people act, how ten million people act, and then we have applied it back to ourselves as individuals. Said, well, why am I not happy? You know. 70% of everybody does X and I don't and I'm not happy then. You know, trying to redefine yourself as against uh, 
a very large body of statistical data. All of this is dehumanizing. All of this is bad mental hygiene, usually quickly cleared away by psychedelics. Because what they show you is, you know, the, that you are unique, that you are unique, and that the confluence of space and time that you're operating in is unique, and that any model that is put forward is, number one, provisional. Provisional means it can be abandoned at any moment. And then the second and most important thing is any model you can't understand is useless. So, you know, most of us can't understand most of the models. I mean, who here would care to walk to the blackboard and begin to describe the first stage of quantum electrodynamics to us? And yet we all know that our world is supposedly hung on this very well-thought-out theory that experts are in charge of. But notice, no pun intended, but notice that if experts are in charge of it, you're not. It's absolutely useless to you. You know nothing about it. Well, so when you start peeling away and saying, well, what do I know? You know, mm -hmm. it turns out it gets into thin soup rather quickly. This is no cause for despair. This doesn't mean you should go back to night school and study <laughs> quantum physics. That's the wrong conclusion. It means that all of this stuff that you thought were the high walls of reality are just smoke blown by somebody else. These constraints are not binding upon you at all. Somebody said to me once their father had been a professional scientist, and uh, he said once, I never would have seen it if I hadn't known it was there. <laughs> and we all are in the habit of seeing all kinds of things because we know that they're there. And in many cases, they're not there. And you just walk through and you discover all kinds of things. I mean, I am convinced that anybody who has a major psychedelic trip, at some point in that trip, their eye falls on things no human eye has ever seen before or ever will see again. You know, it's that big in there. It's not at all clear that we're mapping a generalizable reality. Uh, it may be that it's just so huge in there that never do we pass through the same uh, matrix twice. <laughs> there is an additional part of this talk that I somehow could not find a suitable place for without ruining the edit, so I decided to play it here at the end. In this segment, Terence raises some interesting points that I think you would enjoy regarding purgatory, fairies and Thomas Aquinas. And they all stem from someone in the audience asking if Terence has any new ideas regarding the psychedelic experience. In terms of new ideas about it, the only new idea I've had about it is it's occurred to me with some force over the past year and a half or so that the conclusion that I never looked at carefully because my mind tried to shy away from it was that maybe these things have something to do with the dead. That uh, if you were to ask a shaman how what these entities were, he would just say without hesitation, oh, well, these are the ancestors. 
these are the spirits of the ancestors. Um, there's a hair-raising quality to contacting these things. They are both very familiar and yet somehow freakishly bizarre. And the presence of the familiarity with the bizarre creates a kind of cognitive dissonance that's very, um, well, there's just nothing else that feels quite like that. Uh, I wrote an introduction recently for a reprint of Evans Vence's book, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And I discovered when I reread that book that um, the doctrine of purgatory which is good church doctrine. It's a, a realm where souls go to be cleansed for a few millennia. They're not so sinful that they go to hell, but they go to purgatory for a few thousand years before they enter heaven. Well, I always assumed that this idea was uh, came out of the Roman uh, contact with Gnostic ideas, but I discovered in writing the introduction for the fairy faith, that uh, St. Patrick invented the idea of purgatory. And he invented it when he was converting the Irish to Christianity. He did it as a way to Christianize the notion of the of fae, of, of fairyland. And the Celtic pure belief is that the dead go to a realm that is co-present all around us. We can't see them, but the, the, all around us is just jammed with souls in wild states of activity. And that if you have the eye, you know, a certain talent, you can see these things. Well, Patrick, in order to have an appeal to these Celtic peasants, made purgatory part of the Christian cosmogonic scheme. But when you actually smoke DMT, you burst into a space which seems very much to fit the description of this elfin inhabited space. Because if you think about what, what is the gnosis of elves, elves are artificers. They make things in metal and jewels and glass. This is the archetype of the elves, that they are underground craftsmen. And they are humorous, but their humor is highly unpredictable and sort of not necessarily running in your favor. <laughs> they're somewhat cruel and boisterous and, um, and like that. Well, when you break into this space, you discover, you know, that you're in fairyland. You're in fairyland as much as Darby O'Gill or any of the rest of these people who ever made it across. And the secret of the elves, what they really fabricate, is language. This is why in, in Irish mythology, if you can get elves on your side, you can make great poetry because they're the keepers of linguistic artifice. And, uh, and getting elves on your side makes you into a master poet. Well, it's interesting then that in the Amazon, where there's a tradition of taking DMT, there are these things called hiruke, and they're actually described as bouncing demons. And the hiruke 
you're supposed to get, they come into being when you're stoned, and you're supposed to get them into your chest. You're supposed to invite them into your chest somehow. Well, then the number of these things you have inside of you determines what kind of a real man you are. And this is generally a male practice. Well, I noticed that these DMT types, as I call them, uh, they jump in and out of your body too. They seem to be trying to teach you something about the body image or their relationship to your self-identity. And all the time they're saying, you know, make these objects do what we're doing. Well, then you go down to the Amazon, to the Icaro singing ayahuascaros, and they are using voice to make objects. So what we're on the track of here is a, uh, a uh, physiological ability or a pharma-driven physiological ability to transduce language as something seen. Well, now you see, if, I, if, I, if you could see what I mean, it would be as though we were the same person. Seeing what I mean is a much more intimate relationship to my intent than hearing what I mean. You can hear what I mean and go and look it up in your little dictionary and get it all wrong if your dictionary and mine are different. But if you see what I mean, we will be in agreement because I see what I mean too. So if meaning were something that one could sculpturally command in three-dimensional space and we would walk around and look at it, well, part of what I was doing in, in Linz, in Austria, was trying to get these virtual reality people hooked into this as a concept. Because you see, with the present virtual reality, do you all know what virtual reality is? Everybody knows what it is. Virtual reality is a technology where you put on a helmet and you have a little, and then you think you're in this place, some other place, under engineering control. Well, what you could do is you could slave the parts of English speech to geometric objects so that, for instance, every time you use the word and, a rotating turquoise dodecahedron appeared over your left shoulder. Similarly, all the parts of the dictionary could be slaved to physically uh, or to visually beholdable objects. Well, then, as I would speak, this thing would be happening over my left shoulder, a kind of self-constructing grammatical tinker toy. Well, I maintain that very quickly people would stop listening and start looking, and that they would be getting it. In fact, they would be getting more than if they were listening, because the way in which these syntactically visible parts of speech can be connected and shaded and presented and emphasized and italicized and underlined and brightly colored and set in different fonts and so forth and so on. In other words, many more dimensions to the intent to communicate can be brought into play. And uh, this, I think this is what technology is probably driving for and what the psychedelic experience will inspire is this kind of sculptural linguistic modality where meaning is something that, that we behold. You know, McLuhan talked about how at the inventing of printing there was a shift from the eye culture, as he called it, to the ear culture that uh, uh, before printing 
if somebody gave you a piece of manuscript, it was in cannabula, it was, it was written, it was manuscript, and therefore you had to look at it. After printing was invented, every E looked like every other E, and so print acquired uniformity. And uniformity, you don't, when we read, we do not look. You don't look at the page, you read it, and your eye rips through it. You don't linger over each letter and try to piece out how it's different from the other Fs on that line and stuff like that. But in manuscript culture, you do. Similarly, print created an expectation then of uniformity in the way that the eye expected the letters to always present a uniform appearance, there began to be the idea of uniformity of social appearances. And uh, uh, previously the largest social class had been the guild, but suddenly you get people talking about the ruling class, the middle class, the lower class, white collar, blue collar. These are linear uniform terms for describing lots of uh, uh, non-linear, non-uniform phenomena. And then finally, of course, with the machine age, you get the idea of interchangeability of parts. This is an idea that would never emerge in a, could only emerge in a print culture. Because in a print culture, the interchangeability of the parts of print becomes an established convention. So you say, well, we want to make tractors or hay mowers or so let's not just make one hay mower let's make 50 of them and let's make them all at once and let's lay out the pieces and then let's assemble them in teams and this kind of thinking uh, arises out of the bias of a technology McLuhan talked a lot about technological biases Mayan is an interesting case because Mayan is a rebus language where you use icons not to symbolize things but sounds do you see the difference so for instance if we want to in rebus language you would put a picture of an eye a saw going through wood an ant running across the ground and a rose and that would be a sign which said i saw ant rose the icons symbolize sounds, they don't symbolize meaning. This makes it hellishly difficult to reconstruct a lost language that is written this way because the language, what you have are the symbols of sounds and you don't have the sounds anymore. So how can you reconstruct the language? This is the problem Mayan uh, decipherment has had to grapple with. Uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas uh, in the Middle Ages was thought to be a great saint. And he would prove his sainthood by, they would come to him with a, with a Bible or a work of, uh, of theology, and they would open it in front of him and let him look at it for a few minutes and then close it and question him about it. And he could answer questions. And they thought this was a proof of his sanctity. And all he was doing was silently reading. He was the only man in Europe who could silently read. And everybody else had to sound the words. Well, we can't quite wrap our mind around that because for us this is just something you do. 
you know, it's not even as hard as riding a bicycle. Well, how mings are there where we are down between narrow walls of expectation and just a little tweak of our programming would make a real difference? Okay, that's it for this week. I'm going to end this episode with Sherbon's track Cyber Party featuring Radix from the album Distant Reality. If you like this artist, go to shirobon.bandcamp.com. That's S-H-I-R-O-B-O-N.bandcamp.com. I will also post this link in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Anyway, um, freedom is in the mind.